Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for January 2016. I am writer Hyphen. Why is everyone tweeting about American thoroughbred trainer Oscar White? Don't quite understand that. Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer. I am writer Hyphen spreadsheet maker Hyphen science experiment. And today we have a very special guest who is... I'm Garth Franklin. I'm the writer, editor, creator, graphic designer... All sorts of weird, crazy shit that happens on the website darkhorizons.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Garth. It's Thank you. A, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Absolutely. It's been it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, you, me and Lee have been around doing this gig online since, God knows, back in the Stone Age. Year dot. Before there wasn't online, really. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I started uh, doing the site I did in about 97, 98. So back when mm. the, the internet was just X-Files slash fiction at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it still was just X-Files slash fiction. <laughs> There's only so much variations of Mulderick and Scully you can write. That time. <laughs> but uh, even though there is new X-Files, um, we, we have uh, gathered to talk about the films of this month. And we kick it off with uh, the release of The Hateful Eight, Tarantino's soaring Western epic. Uh, the one he almost didn't make when the uh, script bot got leaked online, but he did. He he made it. He made it in 70 mil. Uh, it looks astonishing. And yet, even though it's shot in 70 mil, it is kind of a claustrophobic rope slash 12 angry men type film, which is kind of one of my favorite subgenres. I mean, Tarantino made the hell out of this film. He couldn't have made it more <laughs> madey if he wanted to, but... It is claustrophobic, and it is sort of like slash fiction of the searchers slash 12 Angry Men slash this slash Stagecoach slash Tarantino's earlier work. Yeah, he always riffs on his own work and that sort of stuff and combines genres in all sorts of crazy ways. I mean, I see huge influences of Agatha Christie in this. I see huge influences of, of the searchers, like you said, and a couple of other westerns, and then just some Big old flesh and exploitation, <laughs> even like Sam yep. Raimi level body horror. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, I, I find what he's doing here really interesting, like the, the mystery of it. That's an element I don't think we've really seen in any of his films, or may, maybe since Reservoir Dogs, because there is the mystery of who's the cop, even though we get that solved pretty early on. I really love the interplay between the characters, and I think, you know, Kurt Russell is fantastic, and Samuel L. Jackson is great but the mvp is absolutely jennifer jason lee I, I get really excited when directors remember how good she is yeah i thought she was great i think she was, I, kurt russell was probably just playing the sort of old-fashioned thing he he's done before many a time i was a big i've always been a huge fan of walton goggins and to see him sort of get the starring role here and probably getting the biggest arc of the movie uh, was an interesting thing. He went from being the absolute sort of ugh, <laughs> scummy piece of thing to being the guy who ends up kind of the hero in a little way. <laughs> Sophie, what did you think? I am also a huge Jennifer Jason Lee fan and props to her and props to her makeup artist because I mm. couldn't watch most of the film uh, <laughs> like behind my fingers. And I am going to say that I have just had a massive blood test today. So mm -hmm. I might oh, have God. to do a, la <laughs> a lady faint uh, thinking about <laughs> Hateful Eight. You know, she really takes the punches in this film oh, and full, full, she goes full, full credit to her and yeah. exactly what Lee was saying but I don't know I mean, if she... that was quite quite enough to win the film for me given that it's like what 17 hours long 
Oh, yeah, the and hate you... play is like a description of its running time, right? Well, it's 100. The roadshow version is what 187 minutes, something, something like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys both saw the the roadshow version, I assume. Yeah, I saw the, the well, I saw the 70 mil uh, version, which I assume is the the, the yeah the, the one, one the one with the overture and the interval in it, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, the interval plays a huge part in it. The Tarantino since Kill Bill really has been deconstructing himself. And so he, that's when he started all this, breaking it up into chapters and doing all that kind of stuff. And then with this one, you had that interval right in the middle. And, you know, without it, it still works as a film, but it comes after that great third sort of act where you have the build up and Samuel L. Jackson doing his little story. And that's just like the peak of the film, <laughs> pretty much in my eyes. <laughs> and did you notice there were music cues from The Thing? Yeah, in- we'll, we'll be talking about The Thing a bit later on. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was uh, that was quite appropriate. Uh- <laughs> so, yeah, any Omar and Corrie sort of story. Apparently, was when he did The Thing, he did Carpenter only ended up using some of it and he had a whole bunch left over and it's never been used in any film. And so he ended up employing it. Terence and said, well, you know, Make me a little bit of music and I'll borrow some cues. And Morricone just built mm. more and more original music. He was getting inspired and he did about 40 or 50 minutes. And then Tarantino used a couple of extra tracks from the thing that were left over, a couple of other songs, and bang, he's got his score. Yeah, between that and Kurt Russell, there's definitely John Carpenter in the mix of The Hateful Eight, like quite close to the surface. Oh, to some extent, yeah. I mean, look, they're all borrowing from different <laughs> different sort of things. I, I loved, mean, they're all borrowing um, from the same sources, but... You can't put Kurt Russell in that role and not have the sound of a snake in everyone's ears, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there are, you know, the thing in many ways. It's a, you know, it's a tight, contained situation with a bunch of people of, you know, dubious motives and you, they sort of have to work out each other and <laughs> end up violently yeah. killing each other. <laughs> Surrounded by the freezing cold. Yeah, I mean, the main complaint that people will have about it, uh, you know, some people, there is a viciousness to it and a sort of heavily, it's his most political film in some ways. One thing that uh, I find a fascinating divide between uh, fans of film is some people have to have a sympathetic character no matter what. It's, it's, there's got to be at least one in there somewhere. And to have a film where there are none is a bit difficult for them. It's, it's never been a problem for me. Actually, I find as long as they're interesting, you can be as despicable as you want. True. But in this case, he and that's what Tarantino is you know, extraordinarily good at doing. He, as a director, he's excellent. But as a scriptwriter, he's an absolute genius in terms of he can play with structure the same way that people can play with food, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and he creates you know, these interesting characters, puts them in the scenarios, and then just lets them rip and cast very well and just... Oh, it's just ex- ex- exquisite on that sort of level. Speaking of uh, being in confined places, uh, this film was nice segue, by, by the way. <laughs> nice, yeah, thank nice. You. <laughs> thank you. I thought that was oh, uh, man, that was pretty we've seamless. Shot our segue bolt for the episode. <laughs> for the year, for the year of I shooting think. bolts. <laughs> well, yes, and uh, Lenny, Lenny Abramson's uh, room. I'm I'm also going to say that I think this is a Lenny Abramson hyphen Emma Donoghue picture because Emma Donoghue wrote the novel uh, and adapted it herself, and she wrote it after hearing about the case in Austria, cases in Austria, particularly the Josef Fritzl case. So it was inspired by those events, which I think drew this issue to international prominence and since we've seen a lot of media reporting of other cases particularly in the US um and I guess the mind boggles at just how prevalent a crime it actually is yeah it's it's sort of the I remember the Austria one like you said it started the floodgates there was a I'd never heard about anything like that before and then all of a sudden it was coming up every few years there seemed to be something like this I think that is like a very tough grim 
humor in the film. I actually thought this film was oh, yeah. harder than the Hateful Eight. I thought in a fight it could totally take it. This well, film well, is it's more, it's more real. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more it's more real. I mean, Tarantino he can get away with a certain amount of a very elaborate violence and lots of stuff because it's a, partly a cartoon. There is that sense of you know disassociation. Whereas with something like this, it's so sort of like grounded and real in your face. It's like this is a lot harder and a lot more sort of domestic as thing. And it's it's a tougher film. Yeah, a bucket loads of tension. I mean, I, I yeah. ripped the armrests out completely. <laughs> We, we, there was sort of audience interaction in the screening that I was at and not even in the bits you would expect. So I think all the way through the... And I don't want to give too many spoilers in case there are people who haven't seen it. All the way through the first half of the film, really, up until you reach the outside world, people were just silent. It was like the whole cinema had held its breath. But then it was once you were in this brave new world that Jack and Ma were so unused to, people mm. really started reacting because everything everyone does seems so dangerous. And I thought that was evidence of really good filmmaking because the locked room situation, it sort of trips something for you as, an, as a viewer. You're like, okay, I know this situation. We're locked in a bunker with Ryan Reynolds. We're in The Hateful Eight. We're in Agatha Christie. It's tense. But then to keep mm. that tension in the second half of the film where in a more Hallmark movie, you'd expect, oh, everything's amazing now. My grandma is Joan Allen. Like, I have lucked out. <laughs> it's, it's still so tense and so dark, and all of those relationships are so fragile. And to keep that going at a point where I think a lesser director, someone with less of, really, a sense of drama and character than Lenny Abramson, and coming from a less good source text, would have just gone, yeah, let's make it lovely. Well, I think uh, part of the way it can get away with being so dark is because as it unfolds from the child's perspective the entire time. So you're seeing plot important conversations happening, but they're in the distance and they're sort of blurred out and you're kind of only half catching some of the words. And with by that doing it that way, you're seeing three sides. You're spared some of the more sort of uglier implications. So some of the, like the basically the rape that's going on and that sort of stuff in some scenes. The middle sequence where it transitions from the room to the real world, I mean, we won't spoil the details, but yeah, I was in the same, I was in a cinema and it's just, you could just, the palpable sense of people around you, just the tension and the <laughs> the mm. breath holding it was incredible. Yeah, and ja- Jacob Tremblay, just what a performance. Oh, wow, yeah. Wow. Kid's amazing. <laughs> the kid is amazing. And credit to the director and to Brie Larson for making the space for that performance and from his uh, acceptance of the Best Actor Award at the BAFTAs, I think he's a, a young man with a, with a massive future. But... He's not up for best actor at the uh, at the Oscars, despite no. the hardest work of uh, the great American racehorse trainer that Lee uh, <laughs> mentioned. I feel that we didn't give that enough credit, so I just want to like big <laughs> that up. Thank you. Um, but our next film does have a contender, and I think actually <laughs> the younger actor in our next film, Creed. Yes. So a film that has several great performances in it. but And I think Stallone's is among them. Uh, I, was yeah. re- I was reading a piece about the whole controversy around the Academy basically finding the only white nominee that they can nominate from Creed uh, as from Straight Outta Compton. Like, that is an amazing brain twist. Saying that the issue isn't <laughs> still that Stallone's performance isn't nomination-worthy, and it used just such a great word for the character of Rocky. It said he's always been mm. guileless. And I was like, oh, not a word yeah. you usually come across in film criticism, but it's totally true. Rocky is a grail knight. He's Percival. He's one of the most pure souls in mm. 
the pantheon mm. of kind of idols of American cinema from the very beginning. Even though, you know, he's a sort of enforcer in the first film, he's so pure. He doesn't even want to win. He just wants to go the distance. And I felt like... He's a great big softie, yeah. He's a great big softie. And not only does he embody that in Creed, uh, directed by the awesome Ryan Coogler, but Michael B. Jordan gets to embody that as well. And that's even rarer to see an African-American character who is gentle and tender. And the relationship between the two men in this film, I think is... I've never seen that in mainstream American cinema before. All the boxing is cool, and I think Maurice Alberti's cinematography just deserves everything. That fight that's done in one take, holy crap. Oh, the one take... Yeah, the yeah. one take thing is brilliant. So, I mean, there are there are a couple of moments like that, like the scene where he's basically channeling the original Rocky and he's running up the hill and gets yeah. on the bikes behind him. And uh, it's, it's an yeah, extraordinary sequence. Extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like every music video ever should just be that scene, but with shots of Michael B. Jordan's arms just intercut into it randomly, like a sort of uh, Kuleshov experiment, it, but with arms. This film is quite interesting in one way because you know we've had a year of uh, nostalgic sort of resurrections of old franchises with your Jurassic World and Star Wars and so forth. And some of them, the nostalgia was almost toxic to some levels. And Creed, aside, you know, Mad Max is probably another example, aside from Creed, that it they did this the actual smart thing of just bringing just enough to, you know, honour and respect what came before, but still take it on a fresh approach and really just deliver something that's its own thing and becomes its own thing and is a, a beautiful piece of work on its own. Absolutely. And I have to make a confession because oh, yes? I have never seen a Rocky film. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I know. And, and this isn't by design. It just somehow eluded me. And and that's kind of what one of the reasons I went to this film was to see what it would be like to watch Creed without having the backstory. And weirdly, I don't think any of the references were lost on me. Everything about Rocky seeped into pop culture consciousness. There was only one small thing I needed explained afterwards. Okay. But it made perfect sense. Weirdly, I find the film is structurally not that different from Southpaw or even Grudge Match, where any film that's focused on a personal journey and culminates in a boxing match can only deviate from that path so much but this is probably the best version of that type of film I've seen and even though I didn't love the film I loved all the elements in it I think Kugler's got mad skills he's really one to watch well with this sort of boxing kind of uh especially with these sort of dramas there is a bit of a formula to it there is a certain amount a slight amount of melodrama there's a couple of you know decisions here where it could you know in other dramas it wouldn't work as well it would just be seen as a bit cliche maybe but I think this actually it manages to pull it off. I mean, yes, it's the same thing of uh, the retired honourable fighter, the young man with daddy issues, and all that sort of stuff, and getting through there. But it just it just does it so well. And uh, yeah, as you said, Cogler is, uh, you know, for what this is his second film, it's second. astonishing. <laughs> and I think there is a slight difference from recent boxing movies and one that goes back to the Rocky films, which is this is also a film about family. And not just by blood, by a, fr- by a friendship. and By friendship as well. And, and the fact that Rocky's restaurant is called Adrian's Place after, sorry, mm-hmm. the spoiler, his girlfriend and then wife. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler. In case you were wondering why it was called that. And also just Phyllis, so great to see Phyllis Rashad on screen again. And Tessa oh, yeah. Thompson yeah. just growing and growing she's so great in dear white people she only had a small role in selma but she really delivered i've loved her since veronica mars and i feel like this was really her breakout role she just has this amazing look 
it's she has her own character arc and she really like goes toe to toe with Michael B. Jordan, which sounds like it's such a cliche to say, but when you're in a film against someone who is playing a boxer and he's trading on their charisma, you know, that part could have just been totally underwritten or just hot pants, you know, and she, she's just great. She's, yeah. she's amazing. Well, that's the thing, she, you know, she's played as like this R&B artist who, you know, is doing the whole life and that could have been played to very cliche sort of things, but there's, then he puts in, there's a couple of real personal touches and it unfolds in a real kind of actually realistic way of the two, Kind of, kind of falling for each other and having that building that relationship. I'm just thinking about Michael B. Jordan's arms again. So I'm going to be distracted <laughs> oh, for the rest I, of the broadcast. I actually took a visit to the uh, Warner Brothers studio lot just before I saw the film, and they have a uh, 20 foot high cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan's upper torso, like for the film as oh, part of the poster. And I'm like, <laughs> I just want to, you know, take that home and stick it on my ceiling. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, for inspiration and motivation in your exercise regime, <laughs> of course. right? Oh, yeah, my exercise routine, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Having finished our review of this month's films by talking about the revival of a franchise and seeing an old hero on screen, we thought that we might think a bit about seeing our heroes on screen and particularly looking back at them after news of their death. Uh, This month, both David Bowie and Alan Rickman died at the age of 69 very close to each other and it was really noticeable that as people communed online to think about them and have communed in the real world as well it's been films that have really marked how we remember them so Bowie obviously known multi-talent renaissance man performer musician inventor of the internet apparently but what everyone really wanted to do get together and watch Labyrinth exactly <laughs> yeah that's true i mean labyrinth was actually a formative film of mine it was one of the films i saw i was about seven in that sort of age where films have that real impact on you you're not too young to completely forget them but not too old so you haven't been jaded by that sort of thing and i saw that movie and oh, i was just completely swept up in it and he will always have that impact on me because that that performance in that film and as much as we love Bowie in that, and we, we talk about Bowie as Jareth, there's still this whole other body of work behind him, which is purely Bowie. It's not someone else's script directed by someone else where he's playing a character. And so his cultural impact is so varied. Our memory of Bowie is very rich and very coloured. Well, no, but with, with Bowie is also, you understood him from different eras. So if you grew up in another era, you identify him with as the man who felt worth mm. with some mm. other people. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is sort of his defining thing. And even for like a younger generation, it was a, he just had a couple of minutes performance in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, and yet he stole, steals the film. Exactly. And I, Lee, Lee, I think you're right that this is Bowie taking other people's words, performing them, but... He was, that's so much what he did. He was so chameleonic and every role that he performed, you feel was just written for him. So you can't imagine yes. anyone else in The Hunger. You can't imagine anyone else in The Man Who, who Fell to Earth. So part of his genius was how he took these roles that came from also a huge range of directors and different cultures mm. and blended them seamlessly into his legend and his body of work. I think that is also true of an actor like Alan Rickman, that even though he wasn't, 
a romantic lead on the American A-list scale. There was something Rickman-esque. I think he merits his own adjective and there's such a coherent body of work there. Even though when you try and actually put it together, you're like, well, Hans Gruber and Snape, okay, I can see a relation there. But how do they fit with Truly Madly Deeply, which is how most British viewers first encountered him. So in this very small, low-budget TV movie, Anthony Minghella's first film, absolute labour of love which was so successful on TV it sort of made this leap to the cinema but then Hans Gruber was his first film role and he just he felt like he was just fully formed so they both got such force of personality I mean he because he was around he was sort of a classically trained actor with that sort of arch voice and look to him and everything like that and I know one of my relatives my aunt fell in love with him from the Barchester Chronicles which was one of an old BBC series which he first started in and from that, he got to a couple of films and then landed Die Hard. And then you would pop up in a few films like Truly Manly DP. He did his Sheriff of Nottingham and all that sort of stuff. But one of the most fascinating things about him, and it's a great story that uh, one of his old colleagues, Emma Thompson, has told in a few things, is that he, as much as he's famous for playing villains, he wanted to play the hero in the white shirt who, you know, runs and saves the girl and all that sort of stuff. And he, he got to do it a few times. Well, she she gave him one of his great greatest roles as Colonel Brandon oh, sense in Sense and Sensibility, yeah. who who yeah. is the very unexpected white shirted hero. You know, he's up against Greg Wise's whatever that character is called, Pouty McPoutface, who you think is going to be the hero and <laughs> has all the traditional markers, and actually turns out to be a complete shit. And it's <laughs> it's Alan Rickman who absolutely saves the day, but in this incredibly quiet mature oh i'm getting all for clement just thinking about it (laughs) (laughs) but here's the thing like our our primary memory of of rickman is of the characters where he's a complete and utter bastard and i think you always feel his unbastardiness under it like the sheriff of nottingham you're like yeah i'm not surprised he hates robin hood and Mm. you're like wait a second i'm just seeing this whole film from the sheriff of nottingham's point of view because it's alan rickman and I think with Snape, that's true as well. Like, even if when you hadn't read the seventh book and you didn't know what the twist was, you were like, I bet Snape has a good motivation for why he's so cool and evil. True, true. After he did Sense and Sensibility with sort of the romantic lead, he did a film called The Rasputin, for which he won mm-hmm. most of his awards, actually. Again, you were talking about how even in these villains, they always have, they were kind of a justifiable and you could see the sort of the side of why he was doing what he did. And that was another great example of that. So with these two figures who are remembered so fondly, if our primary knowledge of them is these roles, are we remembering them or their performances or their characters? And is that a bad thing? I think it's a testament to the power of fantasy and of fantastic genres that they do create larger than life characters, goblin kings, evil wizards, weird German villains. That it, <laughs> in in those non-realist films, those characters can just expand into these archetypes that are so deeply embedded in our culture. And when you get someone who comes along and embodies them so brilliantly, but always, and I think it's really interesting because you could say that Bowie always brought an alienness to any character, however human they were meant to be. And Rickman always brought a humanity to any character, however evil or alien they were meant to be. Like they crossed over in that way, but they both always brought that edge that made it not just some kind of, you know, B-movie archetype that you really thrilled to and then they embedded it deeper in your mind. But I think that also means that people collect stories about them, like the the story Garth just told, Emma Thompson's story, that we want to know what those people were like off screen as well. And I think film viewers are 
pretty damn sophisticated we're really clever we're absorbing information all the time and we can totally manage putting both of those things together so the archetypal role draws us to the the actor and we remember them at the height of their power but then we love collecting these stories about how they were both incredibly kind generous people alan rickman did so much work for human rights and for refugee rights in the UK. He would be the Mm -hmm. first person to say, yes, I'll come and do that for any charity work. And he wrote, co-wrote and directed My Name is Rachel Corrie, one of the most important plays of the last decade. So hopefully discovering Snape will lead a new generation to discovering a great artist and humanitarian. And the same with, with Bowie. Artists have no real control over which roles they're remembered for. It's it's literally up to the audience. But from those small roles that would people get a window into their greater body of work and they can go and explore and see what what really just put the few roles that they did that may not have gotten all the attention but other it's probably the work they're most proud of and that you know that we will they will be remembered for you know of course snape and hans gruber are always going to be remembered by probably the most people but other smaller roles like his truly madly deeply role like maybe even something more sort of quirky like his galaxy quest role or something like oh. that uh, will be adored by and by a smaller, but just as much, if not more so, in some ways, a group of people. Yeah, by Grabthar's hammer, I can't believe that we have not mentioned <laughs> Galaxy Quest, just showing an actor who was so willing to embrace genre, but also send it up at the same time. Like, mm. just had so much love, clearly, for the fans. And I think that's something that is felt about both of them. They were always making these mm. little Easter egg gifts in, in everything that they did. But it it just it did feel like this extraordinary cultural moment that it just happened so close together and that both of them died at 69 for cancer. It felt like the yeah. passing of a generation of people who were not global celebrities for being famous or even necessarily for being attached to, to huge blockbusters initially, but for having honed their class. Mm. They were both working class, done their training, but with government funding. And it felt like the end of era. So Garth, please tell us which filmmaker have you chosen for Hell is for Hyphenates? Uh, I picked a filmmaker that uh, quite a few people of our generation are big, big fans of, uh, John Carpenter. He's an American film director, writer, producer, editor, and rare in some cases, composer. Uh, He composed the scores for almost all his films, bar one or two exceptions. Mm -hmm. And his works have generally been across of genres, but have predominantly been in the realm of science science fiction, horror, fantasy, action, and a blending or combination of of all of those. He's been labelled the master of fear, the pornographer of violence, in one point, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and the patron poet of the fantasy film. Oh, I like that one. That's great. When when did you fall in love with uh, Carpenter's work? Good question. Uh, probably Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, mm-hmm. That was one of those movies that was one of the big VHS titles that a lot of kids hadn't rewatched over and over. And that sort of thing. It was just a silly fun film. Mm. And then I started, uh, because he was, he was very good at doing the whole name brand recognition above the title. So I started looking up some other films from him and I found out yeah, well, these are a lot darker. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you found out some of his more early work and you were just shocked by the impact of films like Halloween and The Thing and so forth. And it's, uh, I mean, I've gone through pretty much his entire oeuvre and it's just wonderfully escapist genre material. I feel like that, exactly what you said, that his films are in science fiction, horror, comedy. He kind of invented that genre blend for American cinema, that that mobility, and particularly bringing that 
that sense of quite dark and sometimes quite puerile, deliberately puerile humour. He's as much of a sort of shock merchant as John Waters, but he does it in these genres that had previously been kept really separate. Apart, you know, he's sort of bouncing off that B-movie culture and his early films are called things like Terror from Space. Um, <laughs> and he really, you know, he, he brought that to the multiplex and then just benefited massively from the VHS revolution because these really are films oh, that you so. want to watch with your mates again and again with popcorn shouting the lines out he's also the patron poet of of video well very much so. i mean a lot of his films uh especially sort of his golden period of films i would say which is everything from assault on precinct through to 13 through to they live so there was a, about a 10 12 year period there he did a film a year and all those films uh almost all classics these days they were either critical or commercial a lot of them critical commercial flops Mm-hmm. when they were released but they ended up in you know with revisionist time and all that sort of stuff they've all become these sort of hallmarks and quite a few of them are now on top films of all time lists from a lot of critics so you you start his golden period from assault and precinct 13 but that wasn't his first feature length no his first film was dark star which was actually well actually his first film funny enough was a short film he did called the resurrection of uh what was it, billy <laughs> uh, Bron- it was like a western bronco billy bronco billy that's right which he won an Oscar for. It was like a short film he just did as a student thing and it ended up playing for two years on the cinema circuit. When you win your Oscar for your first little student film, you're like, where the fuck do I go from here? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, what he did, he's decided to do a film called uh, Dark Star, which was a science fiction comedy about a, basically a crew who were on a spaceship for about 20 years and they're suddenly going a little insane. And their cargo is a bunch of uh, intelligent talking bombs with... The main set piece of the film involving a philosophical negotiation with a bomb to try and defuse itself. It's a very weird little film. He calls it Waiting for Godot in Space. But he ended up working on that film with a uh, fellow student at USC. He went to USC for the, to learn all his craft. And a guy named Dan O'Bannon who went on to do the script and the visuals for Alien and uh, worked on things like Life Force and Total Recall and all these other huge hallmarks of the sci-fi genre. So for a film that costs... 60 grand i think at the time it was a quite incredible piece of work and it went from being just a student project to being a full-on theatrical feature release and now it's like a very hard to find cult film still and it's clunky sure but it is (laughs) it's a unique vehicle long before red dwarf and all that sort of stuff came in it was this was one of the earliest efforts on that field and i mean just what an amazing time to be at usc like just such a fertile Mm -hmm. moment so 1974 you were sort of right in the heart of that new American indie wave and to be there with Dan O'Bannon. Yeah, he was there in like the late 60s, right in the whole Vietnam protests and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I I like to think of it as, you know, if all the filmmakers of that American new wave were a giant school class and you had, you know, Coppola was the captain of the football team and Spielberg was the good looking rebel in the leather jacket who's hanging out with the bikers. I want to see this movie. (laughs) Yeah. The drama majors are all like Altman and Cassavetes and all that. And then, then you had Carpenter who was the sort of, he's like the Ali Sheedy of this breakfast club. He's the outsider who's sort of tucked away, probably smoke, you know, getting a blowjob behind the, behind the shed or something. (laughs) But uh, ends up, you know, just coming up with some of the craziest, weirdest stuff. And he marched to his own tune. He always has. He's very sort of singular, kind of uh very independent minded he will sort of do his own vision without compromise and that has kept him out from probably some of the segments in the system but it has also defined him and that that's definitely part of the story of his films you always get this protagonist who's a 
very independent minded and they're really mm. ornery and that's what sets them apart but they have to get people to work with them they have to persuade people to kind of come on board but then mm. there's always this feeling that in the end you're kind of you're on your own fighting the system and I know some critics have called him reactionary because of the level of violence in his films but there's this really strong sort of left libertarian sentiment in all his films and that that argument in Dark Star with the bomb um, <laughs> which feels really chilling now that you know battlefield yeah. drones that have their own kill switch are about to be a reality it's like and artificial intelligence is moving beyond that sort right of thing, it's, that it's, it sort of splits the difference between dr strangelove and the portentousness of 2001 it mm. so it mashes the, the arguments of those films together and the style of those films together and it, it's just brilliant and it still feels sort of super on the button and that that kind of argument about like hell no we're not going to obey the power just carries on going through all of his films oh yeah i mean look he said he says one of the, the hugest uh, biggest influences on him is howard hawks yeah the classic west, classic western director who did like red river which is like my favorite black and white western and what he is in sort of indebted to hawks's style of filmmaking so in the way that de palma is indebted to hitchcock the difference is de palma was always basically working within hitchcock's genre the psychological thriller stuff whereas carpenter went uh, I, you know, Carpenter, as much as he wants to be a Western director, he's never really done Westerns. He's almost gone the complete opposite. He uses that to, to do more sort of exploitative, more comic book stylings. I think some, uh, the best description of him is Howard Hawks meets H.P. Lovecraft. It's a sort <laughs> of weird <laughs> hybrid, but for some reason it's very, it's incredibly inventive and it works. He did actually remake a Hawks film and a yes, sort he did. of pre-613, which was his next film in 76, had bore the original title, the Anderson Alamo. Well, I mean, Assault on Precinct 13 is essentially Rio Bravo, done in modern Los Angeles at the time, but well, probably a bit more dystopian than it was at the time, but probably is what it is now these days. <laughs> that <laughs> film is. is an interesting film. That was his second film, and it was more of a... The pacing of that movie is just, uh, is just beautiful. It's a straight-up, very well-conceived action movie where you have a bunch of characters thrown into essentially a siege situation. There's just enough set up to make it interesting, and they're all varied. There's all dubious motives and all that sort of stuff. And it's a theme that plays out in numerous other, version, other films in his uh, work where you have a group of people with some sort of external other factor bringing them together and forcing them to work together to overcome that. And the, uh, the we're talking about the Hitchcock influence. Uh, it's mm. certainly very uh, very noticeable in Halloween and uh, Someone's Watching Me, which is not a well-known title, not nearly as well-known as it should be. It was a TV movie shot before Halloween, but aired after it. Yeah, it was a uh, Lauren Hunt and start as sort of a, a woman who lived in one of the, you know, it's Los Angeles, which is one of the flattest cities on earth. And for some reason, she's in the only apartment building that's more than 20 stories. Uh, <laughs> yes. Opposite the only other apartment building that's more than 20 stories in the entire city. And So it's uh, uh, a really rear window-ish oh, very, uh, setup. Very it's fantastic. Rear yeah. yeah, very rear window. And it, it holds up incredibly well, that one, actually. It's quite astonishing. And the whole last 15 minutes of it is her in the apartment with a, a killer. And it's one of the very first times that Steadicam was used uh, in terms of filmmaking stuff. And so you have her, the camera moving about as she's exploring, trying to find out where this, ki where this killer is. And it's incredibly tense sequence. And yet it's, it, it works beautifully. I and mean, this is a 40-year-old telemovie. And yet it's still fantastic. Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing. And going from that right into Halloween, where you've got, you know, he, he makes, he turns the slasher into the new definition of horror. So it's groundbreaking in that 
in that sense, but also the way he employs point of view. Oh yes, yeah. He was using well. That was the pan, that was one of the first times the, that whole trope of seeing uh, a murder through the killer's eyes that was done. It was done with uh, he used what they called panaglide at the time, which was actually steady cam stuff. But you saw you had a mask on over the, the impression of a, of eyes, and you were watching this young kid kill his sister. In, in actuality, it was the producer Deborah Hill who went on to be his wife was the one. Uh, you know, moving the knife in the actual filming of the scene, but right. uh, in the uh, the thing, yeah, that whole sequence is is been, has been so imitated since then. It's quite astonishing how how much impact you can't really underestimate how much impact that film has had on not just other slashes but on the entire horror genre. And you have to say that he's paying really open homage to Hitchcock in Halloween. He casts Janet Lee's daughter. Yep. Uh, Jamie oh, yeah. <laughs> Curtis in the, in the main role and there's also a, a smaller nod which is that Donald Pleasance's character is called Sam Loomis who's one of the minor characters in Psycho yeah. but it feels like he's really saying I'm taking this another step I'm taking that sadistic character and I'm going full bore with them and also beginning the film in their point of view rather than in the sympathetic character's point of view and Halloween I think is also responsible for one of the most influential ideas in horror film from my favourite film book of all time, best title, which is called Men, Women and Chainsaws uh, by (laughs) the awesome Carol Clover. And she was the one who coined the term final girl to describe the character of Laurie, who is the sort of the brave and always virginal teenage girl and mm. who survives. And this has been parodied in Scream. It's been, I think, really brilliantly addressed in It Follows. 80s horror is kind of unimaginable without it. And it was really weird re-watching it and thinking just how much it's been recycled. It's really hard to see it afresh. Because so many of the tropes of it have become the cliche. It's become that sort of thing. And, I mean, it works as a film because it creates this very realistic sense of these young girls in this suburban neighbourhood and you got the characters, and then that's when you start introducing this weird other element of the serial killer coming in and you know, taking them out one by one. One thing this film demonstrates ex- extraordinarily well is that Carpenter is a very big advocate of CinemaScope, of the wide, the big sort of very wide, wide screen, and he uses those frames to the full hilt. He will have you know the shape popping up. You'd be there, you, go, you walk across the room, he comes back, he's gone. And it not only builds the tension, the whole idea that he could be anywhere and often was everywhere, pretty much, <laughs> along with the music. You know, you've got that very simple musical cues, which is the... It works because it is so simple and so straightforward. But it, yeah, there was stuff that was done in there that was visionary at the time. This is a quote from John Carpenter about um, the mask in Halloween. So apparently Tommy Lee Wallace, who was the production designer he worked with on many films, initially bought a clown mask, but they thought it wasn't scary enough. Then he brought a Star Trek Captain Kirk mask. It was really a terrible likeness of William Shatner. I mean, terrible looking. We cut the eye holes a little bigger, spray painted it, and that was it. It looked really creepy. And to me, that sort of sums up his whole approach to fusing science fiction and horror, to having those kind of pop culture references, to perceiving what's potentially so creepy in the things that we love. And I just, I love that story. Like, for some reason, it just sums up my experience of watching these John Carpenter films. It's so witty. 
I, I just want to mention in 1979 he made a TV movie about Elvis. Elvis. It's a very interesting film because it's uh, it's pretty much just a puff piece. I mean, did you know that the only real problem with Elvis was that he was a bit of a workaholic? True. <laughs> but the, the most important thing about this is that it introduced Carpenter to Kurt Russell yes. and started one of the great actor-director collaborations of all time. Uh, Russell was unable to do The Fog. He was offered a role in The Fog, but he couldn't do it. But certainly after that... The two of them worked together a lot. But The Fog was also, I mean, it was the second film for him and Curtis together, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, she got hired because uh, the only thing she got, work she got after Halloween was an episode of Charlie's Angels. Uh, no. <laughs> so she was like, she basically convinced him to hire her and she, she actually credits The Fog as being the one that turned her into the whole Scream Queen status and went, went on to do Terror Train and Prom Night and all that sort of stuff. Right. The Fog is an interesting little movie. It's a straight up just a full on gothic chiller. And there's a brilliant scene about 15 minutes long almost with no dialogue where you're seeing Adrian Barbeau drive to work at a lighthouse and walk down a bunch of steps. And it's just wonderfully atmospheric and yeah. beautiful sort of thing. But you're never going to get that in a film like that these days. It's not we it would be considered is, too long. She is carrying some evil words at the time. Yes. <laughs> well, you're hearing like a radio jingle going over and over. <laughs> I felt like this film had, it was like a, had a really old-fashioned feeling. It's almost more like Moonfly mm. or a black and white English film. It sort mm. of starts with a sailor telling a story, has an evil ship in it, and that is part of what I found so terrifying. In a lot of later films, Carpenter goes really heavy on the fear of technology and yeah. sort of out space and all this stuff that is very industrial and technologized. And the fog is a really old fashioned ghost yard. It's just a straight, yeah, it's just a straight up ghost story. There's not much in the way of blood or gory effects. It's all. You know, there is there is something you can't see ten feet in front of you. You don't know what is out there, and the next thing you know, it'll grab you and tear you apart, and you can you can hear the noises and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, no, it's one of his more underrated, I would say. But then a year later, yeah, a year later came Escape from New York. Yes, Escape from New York, the uh, the the classic uh, science fiction film, which does feel like the closest he came to making a, a western. Yeah, well, I, I would I would say that he did a film in the late nineties called Vampires with James Woods, which is probably the real sort of closest straight up thing to a western. But uh, yeah, you know, you're right on. Um, True Grit, in many ways, has some similarities to the Snake Plissken films. And Kurt Russell doing Clint Eastwood. He's doing a yes. Clint Eastwood voice, which is really oh. interesting seeing that so close to The Hateful Eight where he's doing John Wayne. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, on top, of that, on top of that, he's doing it opposite Lee Van Cleef from, you know... Yes, the exactly. There's something really nostalgic for me about this film, about the idea of 1997 mm. being the future and the idea mm. that the worst thing <laughs> that could happen to New York was that it was going to become a prison island, whereas actually what was mm. happening from 1991 onwards was like this yuppie gentrification, which is even worse than John Carpenter possibly imagine. There is no way Kurt Russell could afford to get out of Manhattan these days. Like the yeah. cappuccino prices alone. Can you imagine? You just have to negotiate Brooklyn without buying a cappuccino. It's not gonna happen. It's so much fun. Like it's it has this sort of these political top notes again about weapons control and prison islands and stuff, but they're just they're kind of just there to get your blood pumping and it's really it is just a straightforward hack and slash quest but with such panache yeah. Carpenter has a couple of recur recurring themes which are pretty uh, good personified in here you have he's a very sort of anti-authoritarian streak and he sort of has very distrust of uh, sort of authority figures uh, and urban decay which is of course <laughs> yeah. New York's been turned into a prison okay <laughs> You don't get much more you know, straight up with the metaphor than that. But yeah, no, it is just a, a good on a classic sort of thing of that. High, it, it personifies what he does. High concept, 
sort of escapist action genres. There's some slight political commentary about America of the time, but mm. I mean, in that case, you could say it's a reaction to Watergate and the distrust of the presidency in the office. But and that's what, as he says that's the way he wrote it. But he's also very much a, a very efficient filmmaker who's like people are here to be entertained. You can throw in a couple of things, but you want to come up with something that will keep them in enraptured with the character and with the narrative his most interesting i guess theme that, that he's so that he's so captivated by is the corruption of the of the system there is an unseen mm. force controlling us sometimes it's the government sometimes it's from outer space in the thing that really kicks it off with this sort of unseen force from outer space in starman it's sort of flipped on its head where it's our government that's threatening the visitor from overseas through to things like village of the damned where it's you know it's the children who and mm. and he's quite blatant about the fact that this thing has come from out of space um, <laughs> like i love that he's not like am, ambiguous about that at all but it's a really interesting thing that one, once you see it you realize that it's it basically permeates all the films he makes yeah yeah he has a i mean he has some a fascination with Sort of religion in some way, which comes into sort of his later work, but a lot of it's about secular authority figures and a sort of complete distrust and corruption of that system, which is strange because he's a very much a he comes from a very sort of hippie background. He was born in New York and then got moved to rural Kentucky and was sort of an outsider there. So maybe it's because of that sort of you know he his family never really fit in in that whole. They were sort of New York artists in the Jim Crow South at the time. Maybe that's, that's sort of informed the themes of his work. Well, this 80s run is really interesting because after Escape from New York, you know, The Thing, which is po- probably my personal favourite of his films. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed hard to find anyone who disagrees that that's, that's not yeah. his best film. It's like, it's incredible. Except film. all the critics at the time who thought it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, what a what a critic's note. <laughs> well, I mean, it was also it was also a, <laughs> it was also a box office bomb. I mean, it was yeah. one of these films that came out. Uh, he op- opened opposite Blade Runner, and two weeks after ET, you know, Jesus, talk about the company you're in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's it, it was bomb because everyone was still still feeling good from Spielberg's movie, and they were like, "What is this weird, dark, ew kind of thing?" And <laughs> at the time, it was dismissed, but now it is considered not just his probably best work in some ways. It's one of the sort of defining works of the entire sort of sci-fi horror genre. There was a critic who called it, quote, a hell of an antidote to E.T. And I think that was meant negatively. <laughs> but looking back yeah. now and thinking about, you know, it's E.T., yeah. it's Reagan, it's Dawn in America, E.T. is like this much more hopeful film. Actually, the thing is more truthful and it seems incredibly visionary. It seems particularly visionary about what's happening with HIV and AIDS, which is being totally ignored by the mm-hmm. government. And it's really hard to read it outside that as a sort of story of of contagion and the uselessness of the government at handling it. It has one of the all-time great dog performances, um, <laughs> something that I'm very keen on chucking across cinema. But nice. And I also think it's just, it's been so influential. So we were mentioning the X-Files earlier, one of the best X-Files episodes, Ice. Well, a, I was a complete remake of that. Is yes, a I've redo, that <laughs> but, with, but with women in it, which, yep. you know, makes yep. it hotter as well as better. And <laughs> more recently, re-watching it, I can't, even really rewatch this film without thinking about this incredible short story by Peter Watts called The Things, mm. which is narrated mm. from the point of view of The Thing. <laughs> and oh, I, can't, okay. <laughs> I can't recommend it highly enough. And I think it's just, it's wow. such a tribute to the way that Carpenter is, is really even-handed. And he did, does give those, those forces that Lee was talking about 
real weight and heft and and we'll talk about this more when we come to they live but they have a real presence and i you know but this story which begins i am being blair i escape out the back as the world comes in through the front just great and it gives you a whole new perspective on the film uh you said with you know with the, with the female characters in the x-files episode is here you have uh a fil- one of the reasons the film works is it is a single sex cast is you have men that are defined not by their sort of political beliefs but by the sort of temperament intelligence and they have this kind of self-built hierarchy and then this other comes in and completely disrupts that and there's a lot of deep deep characterization work that goes into this film that a lot of people just dismiss our thing but actually if you the more you rewatch it the more you realize how how deep it actually king goes uh well after that he made a string of films including stephen king's christine which he actually made before it had been published uh yep. starman which is just an amazing film. And probably the most hopeful of his films, like a film mm. where the end actually well, was, gives you hope. Yeah, Starman was sort of his apology for the thing to some of those sort of people who thought it was, he went too dark and too wild. So here was this sort of romantic, very sort of uh, low-key and restrained kind of thing, but it's a beautiful little piece of work, actually. And then, yeah, of course, Big Trouble in Little China in 86. <laughs> Which is probably, you know, with some filmmakers, you can split them as saying, what is their best work and what is your favourite work? With The Carpenter, for me, it's like The Thing is probably his best work, but Big Trouble is the one I sort of rewatch plenty of times. It's just fun. It's just a straight-up wild fantasy thing where in that sort of action mould, you normally have the big old all-American hero stereotype. With but Russell is just a complete piss-take of it. You know, he's completely clueless. He's an incompetent. He just sort of flies by on the luck and the seat of his pants throughout the entire thing. <laughs> but it works beautifully. I feel like there's a, a, a sort of secret reference to a very underrated Howard Hawks film here called Barbary Coast. Um, because oh, yeah. Big Trouble in Little China was originally meant to be set in 1880 San Francisco. Um, in the kind ah, of spittoon okay, yeah. and sawdust showgirls world mm. of that, which is really the world of Barbary Coast, which is a very, very anarchic early Hawks. Mm. And even though it got, you know, moved to the present day, it's his most Hawksian film in terms of the banter really working. Uh, the Kim Cattrall yeah. character, Gracie. Yeah. She's brilliant and she's the most Hawksian woman that, that I think he has. The whole ending of the film yeah. is out of the searches, essentially. But yeah, no, you, I completely agree. There's the whole... that's uh, That is the one where the... You had great chemistry with uh, Cottrell and Russell and just the, the interplay with the dialogue was, yeah, it's probably one really of his best on that front. Yeah. Can we skip over Prince of Darkness? <laughs> really? Uh, uh, no, the Prince of Darkness is a weird little one. It's an interesting little one. It was a 97 film. It was a follow-up. It was a weird blend of quantum physics, theology, horror, trying to do this kind of, there's a demon green liquid in a jar and it's all about you know, trying to get the anti-god from another dimension in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very strange film. I don't know. It's worth just as a curiosity more than anything else. And uh, then 88's They Live, which is mm. um, probably the worst great film I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> I think well the, the concept is amazing. And I think it's uh, it's an absolute work of genius yeah. trapped in the body of a really awful film. Of a WWF <laughs> wrestling match. That is what it's trapped yeah. in the body of. Um, yeah, that's a great 10-minute sequence. <laughs> like the worst the worst motivated fight scene I've ever seen. And you're just going, guys, like, get a room. And then they do. <laughs> <When you're, laughs> and then he goes, eight love grand for no apparent reason. I mean, the dialogue in this thing is... Not but, for uh, no apparent reason, <laughs> This is the most it's, homoerotic it's... of Carpenter's films, even though there's always this oh, thing absolutely. about men digging each other. And I was fascinated by it up to the point that Frank gets shot, who is the sort of buddy love interest of the main character, gets shot off screen. And then I was like, fuck you, John Carpenter. 
<laughs> it was the too fast, too furious of its time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but great, yeah, but, um, great central concept, which is. <laughs> oh, the whole central concept with, with they live. I mean, the, it was just a straight up body snatchers take uh, a variation of that. From a technical level, it's a fascinating film with all the black and white clever things with the aliens themselves and all that sort of stuff. That stuff's all brilliant. But yeah, the dialogue is oh god. And then Memoirs of an Invisible Man in '92, which is interesting. It looks fantastic. Yeah, it's. I mean, this was sort of the start of the slide for him. It's, it was yeah. his probably the most expensive, uh, about forty million dollars at the time, and it was him trying to. Probably the closest in Starman in terms of tone, but it, it, it doesn't really quite work. I, I, I find it probably his weakest film, one of, one of his weakest films, certainly. In terms of the slide, I think, you know, In the Mouth of Madness in 94 is really good. I, I love his 95 Village of the Damned remake. I mean, for, for me, yeah. the, the, the kind of low point comes with Escape from L.A. and Vampires in, in the <laughs> late 90s. Yeah, I mean, he, he did a film called Body Bags, which is this sort of uh, anthology thing, which was not very good either. It, that was... That was the early '90s, but uh, in the mouth of madness is probably the one I, I consider the, sort of the one great work he did outside that period. That's like a straight up H.P. Lovecraft tribute. There've been terrible adaptions of Lovecraft's work, uh, pretty much across the board, and that was probably the one that's the closest in terms of getting it just right. Uh, and I, I'm a big fan of Village of the Dam, but a lot of people aren't. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I really enjoyed that one. Um, I actually sent a text to my friend, uh, like a, a, an old high school friend, because we, we would go and see everything at the cinema in the late 90s. And I just yeah. sent a text saying, interestingly, Escape from LA, better than we remembered it. Vampires, worse than we remembered huh. it. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting the way that LA hits every single plot beat of New York in a way that feels kind of absurd i'm gonna say yeah. that the hologram projector <laughs> is the problem i don't know whether it's from the era the video game era but it's like there's too much stuff in this film and it's yeah. all just super convenient it's too busy yeah it's too yeah. busy and i think it's really interesting they're talking about um new escape films um that started in 2007 with the worst casting idea ever which was gerard butler <laughs> I, what near miss right but yeah, now yeah. they're talking about Emily Blunt, which I think is super fascinating, mm -hmm. um, particularly because Escape from LA tries to get involved in like Latin American politics and Sicario's really shown how that can be done. So there may still be life in it. And that's what's fascinating even about Carpenter's work from the mid 90s is that people are still remaking it. They're still taking his ideas. It's such part of cinema history except for vampires mm. <laughs> well he i mean the whole uh, a lot of his early work was remade in that sort of period in the sort of early 2000s and stuff like the fog and assault and precinct 13 and all that sort of stuff yeah. uh because the concepts are so strong they can be translated and updated uh they don't normally result in very good films because they're handed off to directors who you know that have no, sort of no real love of the material and it's just it's just an assignment for them but uh, yeah, that's this stuff will be. I assume a lot of his work, maybe not vampires, <laughs> not a lot of the nineteen ninety stuff, but uh, will be remade in the future. I can totally imagine a, a Ghost of Mars prequel, which is about how Pam Grier became so awesome. Now, what do you think of Ghost of Mars? Because I mean, that's now there's a film where for a guy who's famous for doing films about the patriarchy and men, <laughs> here was a film where the authority figures as a matriarchy. It's a, it's it's pretty much a female dominated movie, except for Ice Cube doing. I don't know what the hell he was doing. <laughs> I have to say that any film where you get to watch Jason Statham torn to pieces by crazed cannibals cannot be all bad. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't. It never really has much to say about the matriarchy apart from Pam Grier being su a super fucking so awesome. awesome dyke. And but yeah. she <laughs> dies really horribly. Yeah, early, too and too early. Yeah, and too, and then her head gets carried around by Jason Statham, and you're just like, wrong way around. 
Um, <laughs> Natasha Henstridge is kind of a charisma vacuum, and when you've got actors as powerful yeah. as Pam Grier and the brilliant Claire Duval, you kind of feel like the casting priorities are wrong in that film. Like a Claire Duval Ice Cube buddy movie, I want to mm. see that. The train is awesome. <laughs> Carpenter is obsessed mm. with trains. Uh, as much as he loves cars and planes and helicopters, and he often has uncredited cameos as a helicopter pilot in his films, which, mm. you know, like we did Jack Brell in December, there is something about guys and helicopters. But he loves trains. There's a great train in Starman, and the train in Ghost, mm. from Mars, uh, Ghost of Mars is just a super fucking cool train. Mm. And But that's <laughs> all he really has. He's like, I'm going to set it in a matriarchy, but I'm not going to do anything with that. I've got an awesome train. And I'm going to have a cult led by Marilyn Manson. And then it, and I'm going to try and say something about colonialism. But... Well, that's the thing. There is a bit of colonialism in there. And I think it really continues his theme of always having something to say in genre films about uh, political and social issues, which is one of the reasons I think his work endures uh, so much that even in a film I didn't love, like Ghosts of Mars, there is still, he, he's still interested in these issues. I don't know if he is going to make another film. I, I always, I will always hope he does. But if he doesn't, I think his career goes out in a respectable way with the two masters of horror shorts, Cigarette Burns and Pro-Life, uh, both written by Hyphenates alum Drew McQueenie, or co-written, mm. and The Ward in 2010, which I, I thought uh, was much better than its reputation suggested. Yeah, it's not as bad as they were saying. It's more of a, you know, I thought, oh, God, they're going to do another Gothica. Didn't we just have this? Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, no, it was uh, actually a fairly solid little movie. It's a stra- straight-up girls in prison, <laughs> haunted by ghosts kind of stuff. Uh, a bit derivative, and you can guess the twist, but he can st- he still knows how to shoot and execute scenes and sequences like a master. So it's, even if with this derivative material, it's still beautifully well done. I think execute is exactly... The, the word for the ward i found that it was it had just become quite mannerist um i wanted it to be more like the horror movie of girl interrupted um ah, but yeah. actually yeah, i thought it was just a tiny but bit i put that back, I put that back on the script rather than capital, yeah so. as you say god like gothka but also sucker punch like we've seen this before um mm. and it does feel like exploitation to me yeah, well, I mean, one of the most, one of the last things, because Carpenter did stuff outside of directing, and one of the most recent stuff he did was not in, uh, was in music. In terms of ex- talking about exploitation, he did the score for Gaspar Noe's Love last year. <laughs> right, I yeah. somehow that that news eluded me. <laughs> it's like so, you know, if you you're ending your if he ends his career now, he. He did the music for a computer-generated ejaculation shot. That, that's <laughs> as, as that is a way to go out. out. Um, and I think his music has had a lot of um, attention recently. There's been like a box set release of his soundtracks, and he's really gone from being seen as someone who just recognised two keys on a keyboard to a real pioneer of electronic scoring. And I think that's fascinating as well, mm. because not many directors have that that string to their bow as well as being a helicopter pilot oh yeah i mean he was well he very much grew up with music and his dad was a music teacher uh and so it was it was always a very vital part of him whereas with most multi-hyphenates like your robert rodriguez's right like uh steven soderbergh and so on they're more in, t- in terms of cinematography or that kind of more technical stuff which carpenter wasn't so much he he never did cinematography he was all editor or director or writer uh along with composer he was never into some of the other areas. Well, I think he's going to be remembered as one 
of the best and most influential and most interesting genre directors of all time. Yeah, mm, I very think, much so. you know, people are going to say about him that he was all out of bubblegum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He'll never live that down, that one. <laughs> Garth, thank you so much for joining us this month. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was great having you, and we will see the rest of you next month. Thank you.